Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. There were a couple of public beheadings. In order to kill them, you've got to be a little bit angry. Not psychotic, but just angry. We could look down Frankfurt and see it on fire. Stuff blowing up everywhere. There will be no surrender. And then they had to fight an enemy in amongst we got children. Point, right? you're you're to I could never often. not go back. They were my friends and they felt She did say, you've changed. Soldier put everything on the line to help one of our boys. Dr David Stevens is an historian at the Australian War Memorial. He is a veteran of the Royal Australian Navy and an extensively published historian. In this bonus episode, Angus Horden spoke with David about his naval career and one of the subjects of his recent publications, The History of the Australian Navy in the First World War. I'm Angus Horden, and speaking today with us in Canberra is Dr David Stevens. David, thank you for coming on Life on the Line today. Thank you, Angus. David, let's start with your Navy career. You joined the Royal Australian Naval College back in 1974. What inspired you? Well, I've got to say there wasn't a huge amount of thought. Basically, my father had been in the Navy for many years. He joined in 1941. And so I'd been part of a naval family growing up. And um, the age of uh, 15, the ad appeared in the paper to join the Naval College. And in fact, my father pointed it out to me and um, I thought that might be a good idea. So if your dad joined up in 41, what happened to him during the war? He spent uh, most of the time at the Naval College, but he went to sea in 1944 and joined the um, Royal Navy's Eastern Fleet operating out of um, uh, Ceylon at that stage. And he took part in some of the latter operations the British conducted against the Japanese and the Dutch East Indies. You specialised as an anti-submarine warfare officer. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I went to the Naval College, went to the University of New South Wales and got a degree and then started doing my training at sea to get my bridge watchkeeping certificate, went to several different ships. And the idea was that you eventually specialised in um, something and I chose to be a warfare officer. And so at that stage, the course was in the United Kingdom at HMS Dryad in in Hampshire. And so in... um, the mid-1980s, I went over there and did the course with about uh, four other Australians and um, a dozen or so British officers. So I suppose your dad must have felt quite nice about his service in the British Navy and here you are over in Britain serving with the Royal Navy. Well, in fact, it was very much a um, personal journey for me because uh, my mother had been in the Women's Royal Navy and had met my father in HMS Mercury, the communications establishment there. And during my course, I went to the same places that they'd met at. It's a difficult life being married to a serviceman or servicewoman for that matter. And I can imagine that it probably would have helped your family that both your parents were service driven and, and, and had an understanding of what life you know, with the services was like. I think that's very much correct because, in fact, my mother's father had been a merchant seaman and so he'd spent months away, if not years at times, and had been to torpedo during the Second World War. So she had grown up in that sort of family, not seeing her father too terribly often. So, yes, I think she understood it. On the other hand, she had it particularly difficult because she had to come out from England to Australia and 
very soon after she got to Australia, my father went back to sea again. And so she was on her own and my older brother as a baby, not knowing anyone in Australia. So it was a very difficult life, particularly in the 50s when you can't drive and you <laughs> said you're in a completely new country. In 1984-86, you're on exchange with the Royal Navy and one of the first Australians to conduct a Falklands Island peace patrol. In 1982, during the Falklands War, the Australian officers who were on exchange with the Royal Navy had been taken off their ships before the ships had deployed to the Falkland Islands because the government, our government had made a decision not to be involved. And it took until 1986 for Australia to give approval for Australian officers to go back with British ships to the Falklands. And I think the Royal Navy thought this was fantastic because there were two ships sent down with um, six warfare officers, of whom three were Australian, because the uh, British were the best one in the world. The British didn't think deploying to the Falklands was much fun either. <laughs> but for an Australian, it was a fantastic experience, a place you'd never been before. I mean, yes, there wasn't an awful lot happening when you were on patrol. You were just sort of sitting off the Falkland Islands, waiting and watching in case the Argentinians made an incursion. But you did have the opportunity to go ashore, see the Falkland Islands itself and Port Stanley, the, the capital, and even had a, a trip down to South Georgia, which was an old whaling station. And um, the wildlife and the scenery and the glaciers was just uh, something, for me at least, was something I'd never experienced before. David, can you share with us further the experiences of going back into the Falklands area after all the fighting had finished? Yeah, look, um, our job was to just patrol off the Falklands and sit there with our raiders turning and listening to um, electronic transmissions, etc., waiting to see if the Argentinians were going to try and penetrate the Falklands defences. And obviously there was aircraft as well we could call on that were based in the Falklands. It could be a tense situation at times because you wouldn't get much warning if they did decide to approach. And it was the first time in my career as a naval officer that I'd been issued with the keys to the weapons, for example example, which does give you a, a certain tenseness to the situation. And there were occasions where Argentinian fishing boats, for example, would get quite close to the exclusion zone and you'd have to be aware of what was going on and, and what we'd do about that. So certainly in the back of your mind when the war was on before and Sheffield had been taken out by the Argentinian Air Force, if the Argentinians did come back and were hostile, they still had that lethal capacity against you. They did, most certainly. In some ways it had improved, but at the same time the British defences had improved as well. But you certainly couldn't get away from the war to the extent that uh, when you did go ashore there were still minefields, which you weren't allowed to go into obviously, and there were memorials for the lost ships. And in fact there was a major memorial in Port Stanley for those that had been lost from the British side in the war, which you would visit. And of course a lot of the people on board had been in the Falklands during the conflict and so had their own experiences. And in fact one of the senior sailors on board the ship I was on had gone down in Sheffield and so as a survivor from that and I'm sure for someone like that it was a very different experience going back just a few years later. So David leaving the Falklands you now find yourself in the first Gulf War. When I'm coming back to Australia I did some another job at sea then I was on a shore posting when I had a call from the posters who were looking for a warfare officer to go on the staff of the commander of the task group in late 1991. And I went with the second task group, which was HMAS Brisbane and HMAS Sydney. And we left in December, sorry, November uh, 1990 and stayed there for three or four months. And that was a, a very interesting period, obviously, because again, you don't, you train for warfare throughout your career and actually being involved in it, it does bring home the value of your training and of course, see how things really operate in those tense situations. 
David, when do you actually retire from full-time service and, and why do you leave? For personal reasons was the reason I retired. Um, you mentioned before how difficult it is for families with the spouse who's in the service going away constantly. I was at a stage of life where I really had to spend more time at home. So I was started looking for another job and I had been doing some postgraduate work in strategic studies and history. And fortunately, the Navy at the time was looking for a um, historian uh, to work with what was then called the Maritime Studies Program, which was looking into the more theoretical side of naval operations. I applied for the job in um, 93 and finally got it in 1994 and then spent 20, more than 20 years working with that program, which became the Sea Power Centre Australia as the naval historian. David, you're a thoroughly published historian. We could spend hours and hours talking about all the different topics that you've tracked over your career. However, today we'd like to talk about your award-winning 2014 book, in all respects ready. What's that book about? Well, as you can imagine, 2014 was the centenary of the start of the First World War. And in the years previous, I had initiated a project within the Navy to write a new history of the Royal Australian Navy in World War I, such that it would be ready in time for that um, centenary. So I had spent three years or more researching and writing. Fortunately, I made the deadline and it came out at the end of the year. But it was really a chance to reassess what tends to be a, a not very well-known aspect of our World War I history, the role of the Navy and what it did. There really hadn't been a, a full history since the official history by Arthur Joe's been published in the late 1920s as part of the official history series then. So this was a chance to, to use all that new information that had come out since then. And of course, the fantastic research tools that you have these days, which you didn't have back in the late 20s. And as I said, re-look at what the Australian Navy had done over the four years of war and what its achievements had been. Naturally, so much is known about our brave diggers on the front lines in the Western Front, and, and rightly so. And certainly our pilots, they were in a new field of warfare. But little is said of the Navy. For our Navy, the war begins really close to home with the capture and occupation of those German colonies up in New Guinea. The Australian Navy's claim to fame at that period is it was the most the service that was really ready for war. The new fleet had only arrived the year before. It was a powerful force in the region. The Navy had set up its own intelligence system and was fully integrated into the global system run by the Royal Navy. So it was really very much aware of what was going on. And those early operations, within days of the war starting, included making sure that the German forces in the region lost all their communications and base facilities. And that included taking over the German colonies in Samoa with the, uh, the New Zealanders and in German New Guinea, which was obviously very close to us. And the Germans actually, their ships in the region cold at the base that we invaded. And David, this naval force, I think it was von Spee and his East Asia squadron. It wasn't a small force. I mean, if our forces came up against it, I wouldn't have liked our chances. Well, certainly the, the East Asiatic Cruiser Squadron was an extremely efficient, two powerful armoured cruisers, Nisnau and Scharnhorst, and several smaller cruisers, of which we might talk later about Emden, which was one of them. But um, they were based in the region and their, their war plans included attacking Australian shipping off our coast and trying to prevent Australia from transporting its resources and soldiers, for example, to the war effort wherever it might be in the war. And it was really the rapid action of the Australian Navy that prevented Von Spey from carrying out his plans and eventually deciding not to come to Australia, but to instead go the other direction 
direction towards South America, where he was eventually destroyed off the Falkland Islands. And I can tell you that there's a memorial to that battle in Port Stanley as well. But just prior to von Spee's eventual defeat, their first encounter with the Royal Navy was successful, where they were the better. But certainly the squadron from Admiral Craddock was destroyed by the Germans, and it did show how powerful the German ships were. And they were a real threat. But the point about um, our fleet was that we had as its um, centrepiece the flagship HMA Australia, a powerful battle cruiser, which alone was more powerful than von Spey's squadron even acting together. And in fact, von Spey wrote to his wife at one stage saying, I'm not going to Australia because Australia is too powerful for me, the ship he's talking about. Let's go back to New Guinea. So what's perhaps not better known is that the first casualties for Australia in the First World War are actually naval ratings. Exactly. There was a combined Australian naval and military expeditionary force that uh, was first recruited to go into uh, German New Guinea. And it was, in fact, naval reservists who made the first landing and fought against a actually stronger German force. And eventually, um, through uh, bold action and bluff, i.e. they said we, were sur- we had 800 people following us, not the couple of hundred they might have had, they convinced the Germans to surrender. And it was all about, as I mentioned before, the communication. The fact that the Germans had a wireless station was the target for the Australian force because by destroying the, the wireless station, the Germans lose their ability to communicate with their ships and plus their ability to coal their ships in German New Guinea. David, you touched on an important point, the reserves. So it wasn't until later on that we built this great reserve force up in the country, but certainly at that time, the country didn't have a large professional force and the Navy in particular were able to draw on quite a good pool of reserve forces and these people accomplished themselves very well. Yes, enthusiastic amateurs and at times, and I think for some of them it was a big shock to uh, face real bullets for the first time when you'd spent your time in Australia just uh, marching up and down parade grounds and firing on firing ranges. Um, and certainly there's a lot of comments about uh, you know a letter from one sailor to his mother saying, I've been shot at, I never want to do it again. They did, however, do very well. And that was before we actually had our fleet arriving in, in 1913. Most of the naval forces had been reservists, virtually land-based because we didn't have any ships or many ships, and they were mostly artillery-type forces, gunners, etc. But we were able to bring together enough in the Australian Naval Military and Expeditionary Force, Naval and Military Expeditionary Force, to um, achieve the aim with the support of the fleet. And as part of our force that we deploy north, we actually had our first submarine, AE-1. She was tragically lost and has only recently been found. Yeah, we had both our submarines up there, AE-1 and AE-2, with a full supporting force. And the submarines were there helping to assist in patrolling the approaches to Rabaul. And particularly at that stage when von Spey's squadron, the the whereabouts were unknown, it was important to have these assets away from Rabaul, which could intercept the Germans if they decided to attack. In fact, AE-1 was on one of these patrols one day and just failed to return. And and as you rightly said, it's taken 100 years for it to be found and be properly commemorated. We should also be mindful that this is the first time we have a Navy that actually has submarines. And these submarines were made in Britain. They were sailed over here. And it wasn't like the crew had a lot of experience with years of training with these submarines. Can you elaborate how difficult those ships were to run? Yeah, if you can imagine a steel tube, not much bigger than a a large circular dining room table, and you're um, in in cross-section, and you're in it for weeks at a time. You have no galley. You're reliant on someone else to provide you food every couple of days. 
and you're making the first the trip originally from the United Kingdom to Australia and then going up to New Guinea to conduct these operations. It was extremely difficult, particularly when you're in the tropics and there's no air conditioning on board. You had to be a certain type of person to be able to, um, to cope with that. And the Royal Navy, in fact, made some very congratulatory comments on the, on the crews of our submarines because they had done so well in just getting these agricultural machinery, really, from one side of the world to another and then successfully operating them. And also, when they brought these boats over, I mean, they cruised more economically on the water than under the water. And of course, if you've ever been in a submarine and you are cruising on the water, it's a lot different to actually being in a frigate or something else, that the role is terrible. Yeah, oh yes. And of course, these are very small submarines. They're much smaller than, say, our current Collins class, tiny vessels. And yeah, they're subject to wind and weather, extremely difficult conditions. On the way out, they painted them white in an attempt to keep them a little bit cooler, set up a bath on the upper deck. They could at least get some relief that way. Trying to live on these things, and as I said, you're reliant on another ship to bring you your food every couple of days that you're going to have. Very difficult life. You had to be a very interesting sort of person. And David, I think it was sad that we couldn't actually make public the loss of our first major vessel for the effect on morale that would have. But I'm sure the Navy would have been very upset about the loss so quickly of half its submarine force. Yes. I mean, it's certainly for the crew of AE2 who had trained with the crew of AE1 and then to lose half of Australia's submarine force disappears. All, all, all hands lost. Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a great shock. And when the story did come out, there was sympathy from all over the world because we were a very small Navy and this is a major loss so early in the war too. And this is the point and the sad thing with Navy that if we lose a ship and she goes down with all hands, we lose a big complement of crew. And, you know, suddenly if, if we lose a cruiser later, you know, you're talking hundreds and hundreds in one action. And as you said, we lost half that experience of that ability just went and the war hadn't really even started. No, no. And, and obviously the, the example in the Second World War is HMO Sydney, where we lost more people in one go than were lost in the entire Kokoda campaign. Of course, AE2 then redeems the loss of AE1 with great glory. And perhaps we might speak quickly on her because her significance in the Gallipoli action. Again, it's one of these stories that are kind of known, but perhaps not as well known as it should be. AE2 penetrated the Dardanelles the night of the uh, 24th, 25th of April, 1915. So it's actually the first Australian force into Gallipoli made it through the Dardanelles, which is a very well-defended Turkish strong point, both by mines and, and guns ashore. So every time A2 put up its periscope, for example, it would be shot at. Every time it went down, it would be scraping mines, a very dangerous situation to be in. And she was the first submarine to successfully penetrate the Dardanelles. Previous attempts had failed because the submarine had been destroyed, run up, up on the ground. In fact, even A2 ran, on the ran up and grounded itself at one stage. And fortunately, the, um, the Turkish guns couldn't depress low enough to actually hit her while she was showing out of the water so close to them. And she eventually managed to get off. After a very long period underwater, she eventually managed to surface and uh, recharge at the other end of the uh, Dardanelles before moving into the Sea of Mamara, where she um, lasted for a week or so before 
sinking. And David, the significance of AE2, of course, is that Hamilton, who's the commander of the troops at Gallipoli, the whole amphibious operation, is at this stage after that first night wondering what is he going to do. And he's heartened by the fact that an Australian warship has penetrated the Dardanelles, has inflicted damage on Turkish shipping. The morale of the whole force was buoyed by that. To what extent do you think that information influenced Hamilton to stay? It depends on whose diary you read. (laughs) But certainly there is a comment from one of the senior naval officers is that he went in to that meeting where they were discussing whether to withdraw troops and came in with a message because when A2 had got to the other end, she sent a message saying, we've made it. And um, he took this message in and said, look what this Australian submarine has done. It certainly buoyed the mood of, of some of those people in that meeting. And it was made part of the message that the um, this has been achieved. It's going to destroy all the Turkish transports, bringing reinforcements and ammunition to their troops on Gallipoli. And therefore, it's much more likely that our troops who are, who are bedded down under fire will be able to hang in there and eventually achieve success. So it, it does make a, a major contribution in that way. Unfortunately, of course, A2 didn't match. She had a lot of troubles with her torpedoes. And although she made one possibly successful attack on a, on a Turkish craft, she uh, ended up being attacked by a Turkish patrol craft in the Sea of Mamara and uh, eventually had to be scuttled. David, let's leave the submarines now and talk about the Navy's role in importantly escorting all our troops across the Middle East. Yeah, it's, it's, again, it's something that we forget about when we talk about our operations in Europe or elsewhere in the world, is that they had to get there from Australia. And part of the Navy's role, which is often ignored or forgotten, is that the reason these troops can get where they need to go is because the Navy's there either escorting them or preventing enemy um, forces from uh, appearing in that ocean. Which brings us back to the first troop convoy between Australia and the Middle East, where Sydney is one of the escorts, together with a number of other Australian ships, including Pioneer at one stage and, and HMAS Melbourne. But Sydney, of course, was the victor in the engagement with the German raider Emden, who was part of Bond Spey's fleet, but rather than go off to South America, had been detached to operate independently in the Indian Ocean. Now, if Emden had managed to get in amongst the troop ships, she could have caused major damage with hundreds, if not thousands, of lives lost. But fortunately, she made the mistake of going to Cocos Island and being reported, and Sydney was able to go there and destroy her before she could do any more damage. But obviously, Emden had already had a very successful career destroying merchant ships and um, doing a lot of damage there and forcing insurance rates to rise and preventing some of these resources from the area being passed to where they were needed. And as you say, David, the significance of the radio stations, it's Emden going to Cocos because they're trying to knock out our radio station there, as it was our guys going up to Guinea to knock out their radio station there. Very much so. And it's it's not just the radio, it's also the undersea cables. The problem for the Germans is that they didn't have their own undersea cables. They had to borrow British ones, which were more easily intercepted. And certainly in the, in the Pacific, they only had the radio station. But in the um, Indian Ocean, we had our major cables. And Emden not only was trying to blow up the radio station at Cocos, but also cut the undersea cable. Fortunately, they made one cut and it could be recovered and repaired fairly soon. The significance of the Emden action is important because Australia is an island nation and we have our lifeline from the world being shipped in and out all the time. And with Emden out there, 
and other threats, you are not able to freely trade. You have to basically bring your naval merchant shipping together and then put it under control and protection from warships like Sydney, etc. So the role of the Emden was critical in that disruption process. And as you said, the damage that it did and the psychological effect that it put on this nation was quite considerable. That's right. And the fact that once Emden was destroyed, these psychological blues to allied morale was fantastic because the Indian Ocean had been essentially cleared of enemy forces. And with von Spee's destruction that December in the Pacific, all the oceans surrounding Australia were clear of enemy forces, which meant for several years we could transport our resources and our, um, our troops where they needed to go without any interference. That didn't last forever. The Germans did start to send raiders back in 1917, which could cause some problems as well, particularly when they were mining off um, Gabo Island, for example. Just finishing on the Cocos Island action, not a lot is told of the German crew that were sent ashore and sought to destroy the station and their miraculous escape eventually back to Germany. Can you share any knowledge on that? One of the great exploits from the war, which uh, I think the Germans made a film about a couple of years ago. But the, um, the forces that um, von Mueller, the German captain in Emden, had put ashore were trapped there because Sydney appeared over the horizon. Emden had to up anchor, disappear to engage Sydney. And the people ashore were left behind. It didn't take them long to realise that Emden was not doing as well as they'd hoped and probably wouldn't be coming back to get them. And so they took a, um, a very old and uh, decrepit schooner that just happened to be sitting in the harbour called the Aisha and set out on this voyage from Cocos Island across the Indian Ocean. Eventually, they reached the Middle East and then had another quite interesting journey overland, fighting off Arab tribesmen, etc., until they uh, reached the safety of their Turkish allies. And it was uh, they lost a couple of people in that journey. Yes, a remarkable um, story of endurance. Talking about stories... Can you tell us about HMAS Pioneer? Yeah, Pioneer, which I mentioned briefly, has been part originally of that escort for the um, first troop convoy. She only lasted a couple of days before she broke down and then had to go back to Australia. But she was still actually quite well armed. And the British had a problem in East Africa where there was another German light cruiser called Königsberg. She'd appeared just after the outbreak of war, sank a British ship and could have posed as much of a threat as Emden. But her captain, rather than racing around the Indian Ocean, retreated into the um, Rafiji Delta in East Africa. And the British couldn't get through the approaches with their the ships they had there to destroy it. And because it's in the middle of the jungle and it's in German territory, they didn't have much chance to send in land forces. The hope was that Pioneer, with a shallow draft and its powerful armament, could actually do something very useful in attacking the Königsberg and destroying it. And uh, she went over there and spent most of 1915 patrolling off the coast of East Africa, intercepting German smuggling, stopping the arms control, and making the occasional attacks on Königsberg with British forces, of course. And it went on for quite a while. Eventually, the combination of the ships offshore engaging Königsberg and British aircraft that were spotting the fall of shot meant that the Königsberg could be destroyed. Although even then, the Germans managed to save some of the guns on board and use them ashore as part of their campaign in East Africa, which really went even beyond the end of the war, beyond the armistice. 
So this is just typical of all these various ships doing various things. And it's not Western Front stuff, so we don't sort of know a lot about it. But it was still lives were at war in dangerous and faraway places. Oh, yeah. The, um, it's, it's not really understood, and it's particularly hard when you focus on the Western Front, that it was a world war. I mean, sometimes you talk about operations in Palestine. But the Australian Navy, when you consider it really only had a dozen or so effective ocean-going ships, actually ended up serving on most of the oceans of the world. Sydney, for example, after it had destroyed Emden, ended up off the coast of North America between Canada and and New York, uh, preventing German ships from escaping from New York Harbour because at that stage the Americans were obviously neutral. She was joined by Melbourne. They moved right down to the Caribbean and were operating off there, occasionally getting involved in local revolutions, having interesting discussions with American ships, which didn't really like having British ships around doing things. We also had um, other ships operating in the Pacific, particularly later in the war where there were German raiders operating in the Pacific, things like the Seattle, uh, which was a German um, uh, yacht that had been turned into a raider. And we sent our ships out looking for that in right in the far Pacific. Eventually, we were operating all through the Mediterranean, even into the Black Sea by the end of the war. So we had our ships everywhere. And indeed, Australia, our flagship, was deployed with the Grand Fleet. Very much so. She became the, um, the flagship of the second battlecruiser squadron, which was the, the strategic cavalry for the Navy, I think it was Churchill's term. She was a powerful battlecruiser and integrated completely with the battlecruiser fleet operating throughout the uh, war in the North Sea, patrolling. In some ways, you could see it as a bit of a boring war. They didn't have too much action. At the same time, those constant patrols made it more difficult for the um, German submarines to get out of their harbours and operate. And it also kept the German fleet bottled up throughout the war. So still a very important role. Can we talk about something that happened on board Sydney, which was quite revolutionary at the time, back in November 1917? Yeah, well, one of the interesting things was the involvement of the Australian Navy in aviation developments in the North Sea. And you've got to remember at this time, aircraft are very flimsy wooden canvas things. And uh, putting to sea is always going to be a bit difficult just because of the sheer conditions. You think about operating them from a land base is one thing, but operating them from a moving platform is another. And we were involved in some very interesting experiments. HMAS Sydney had one of the first, or the first, rotating platform put on its just ahead of its bridge and behind its bow gun, from which it was launching a, a, a Sopwith Pup in 1917. And by the early part of 1918, it had been changed to a Sopwith Camel fighter. And the same was fitted on HMAS Melbourne. And in fact, because it was so successful on other British cruisers. And it's not commonly known that on the 1st of June 1918, Sydney and Melbourne both were able to launch their camels to intercept a German reconnaissance flight in the middle of the North Sea. They had the first aircraft up. Melbourne's flight unfortunately couldn't see anything and eventually came back down again. Sydney's pilot, who's a chap by the name of Sharwood, saw the German flight retreating, chased them and made several attacks on um, one of their aircraft. At the time, thought he'd been successful in shooting it down. But it was that, that was the first time an aircraft, a heavier than air aircraft, had been launched from a ship and successfully intercepted an enemy aircraft. Of course, there are other actions and operations undertaken by the Navy. There's a lot of fascinating history there to dig into. And we just only have so much time, unfortunately, today on our podcast. Let's move on to your other work, though, that you've currently been employed as an official historian as part of the War Memorial. What project are you currently attached to, David? 
Well, I'm uh, currently an author on the um, new official history series looking at Australia's operations in Afghanistan, Iraq and East Timor. There's two volumes on East Timor and four covering the Middle East area of operations. I'm doing the first Middle East volume, which is, is covering operations in Afghanistan from 2001 to 2005 and all maritime operations from 2001 to 2014. So it's, it's quite a, an interesting project with uh, lots of things to be looked at. David, if people want to learn more about your work or look up your other publications, how do they get in touch with you? Well, easiest way, if they want to get in touch with me personally, is to contact the War Memorial. If they want to look at some of these publications, a lot of the ones I did for the Sea Power Centre are available online. And if they go to the Sea Power Centre website and look for publications, they'll be able to track down some for free download. Dr. David Stevens, it's been wonderful to speak with you today. Thank you for your service and thank you for all you continue to do for the nation today. Thank you. You can find out more about the official history that David is working on in the Season 2 bonus episode, Australia in Afghanistan, with Dr. Rhys Crawley, for my conversation with Rhys about the writing of modern history. You can look up the Australian War Memorial online at www.awm.gov.au and they're also on social media at awmemorial. This podcast is also on social media. Follow us on Twitter at LOTLpod and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget. <laughs>